Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Cheryl and I had to knock down a part of our house. This was not a fun uh, time for us as, uh, as a family, as a couple, uh, but it started, and some of you were around, you'll remember this, it was a few years ago, we had a small house fire, and it wasn't a big deal, uh, nobody got hurt or anything like that, it was, it was a small fire, it was outside the house, it was in the garage, uh, like in the garbage can area of the house, and then it got up into the attic a little bit, and it burned some things, but like when they called us, they said, you got to come home uh, because your house is on fire. Like, you got to come home now. And so we did. We, we both came from different places. And this is the scene that we came to. This is our house. And it was our house. And uh, all of these people and fire trucks everywhere and all these people. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what in the world just happened? Like, our whole is going to turn things upside down. This is before uh, COVID. We were doing the rebuild during COVID. But inside the house, we, after, you know, everybody left, this was the, the demolition crew that came in to kind of help us to restore things. This was like one of the worst areas at first. You know, the, the, the firefighters had come in here and they had sprayed this whole area out that window onto the garage. And, and it was like, you know, this is all right. I mean, this is, it's a big deal, but we've done construction before. We've done it at the buildings. We know this is, a, this is a few pieces of sheetrock and some insulation. Like, just, you know, just do it. Get in there, rip it out, be done. But then the insurance company started saying, actually, it might not be like that. You should be looking for a rental. We're like, well, I thought we were in the hotel. And they're like, no, you're going to be in a rental for a while. We're like, yeah, but how? they're going to make me sign a lease like a, a year. They're like, yep. It's like, what? What are you guys talking about? They're like, oh, yeah, you should be thinking about that. And so they started with other parts of the house. And all of a sudden, they're peeling more off of the house. And then they're opening up the ceilings. And then they're ripping out the electrical panel. And, and we were just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I want you to put it back to how it was, and I want it done yesterday. Like, I, I don't want this whole big thing in the project. I just put it back the way it was. And they told me that's what they were going to do. They were going to put it back to just how it was before the fire. I'm like, great, a month if you're slow. Like, that's it. Get it done. And so, you know, here we are. We're, we're kind of seeing more and more of it. But this was the day that really kind of broke my heart. I had f- selected this tile in our first renovation some years ago. I had found it. I, I showed it to Cheryl. She loved it. It was like the only piece of thing I picked in the whole house that she was like, this is amazing. And I loved it. And she loved it. I was so proud of it. It was our kitchen floor. And then this guy's like smashing it with a hammer. And then back here's the radiant heat. And I was like, I was on my hands and knees. I laid those those pipes myself. Like this is, and I'm watching them rip these things out. I'm like, this is not what I wanted. I want you to put it back quick. This is like, it, I'm seeing through the walls now. And then, and then all of a sudden, heavy equipment showing up. The architect's like, we can't build on uh, this part of the, the foundation. We can't rebuild. It has to be to code and insurance. It'll, it'll cover it and don't worry. And I'm like, don't worry. You're knocking down part of the house. This is, I, sheetrock. That's what this was supposed to be, a couple pieces of sheetrock. And now you're doing, that's my foundation. They're ripping it up. They're breaking it out. They're carting it off. Cement trucks are rolling, and they're coming up to the property. And I was like, I did not sign up for that. That's not it. There's an old parable that uh, a preacher, George McDonald, I think, first used it. C.S. Lewis has developed it. And they say, imagine your life like a house. 
Imagine the whole of your life like a house. And when you first come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I'm not a Christian, I don't know what it means to be a Christian, but one day you become a Christian, and you invite Jesus to come into your, your life, and you and he are on a rebuilding project for your house, for your life. And at first, it's really cool because you know there are some things wrong with you. You know there's like a little piece of mold growing over here, and you want to get that worked out. There's some weird smell coming from the basement, and you're like, oh, I should probably look at that. The pipes don't work quite right. And you're like, I need, a couple, I need a, a couple of upgrades here. And Jesus comes in, and he starts working on those upgrades. And you're like, this is amazing. I have like new resources and new power to actually become a better version of myself. And at first, it's pretty exciting because all of a sudden, you walk by the basement door, you're like, ah. I don't stink anymore. Like, this is a really good thing. Like, I'm, my anger isn't dripping out when it shouldn't be as much as it was, and I'm not, I'm not snapping at people as much as I was, and, and I'm finding honesty and integrity at work to be, to be a virtue and a value that I'm really excited about. And so you're, Jesus and you are fixing a couple of these areas of your life, and you're like, all right, let's put it back to where it was supposed to be. And at first, that's, really, that's a really fun thing. It's exciting. It's a little challenging. But you're doing what you know you want to do anyway. And Jesus is helping you do it. And all of a sudden, one day, you're living pretty comfortable in this, this beautiful little cottage that you have built. And then you hear like a jackhammer out back. And you're like, hey, 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 what's going on? <laughs> you're like, why is Jesus operating a jackhammer in the backyard without really talking to me about it. Like, what the heck? And all of a sudden, you hear heavy equipment start to roll, and it's got the little Heaven is our us or logo or something, and Jesus and his cronies are coming up on board, and you're like, what are you talking about knocking down a part of the house? That sounds like it's going to hurt. I'm not really sure I'm, I'm, I'm signing up for that part of this journey. And, and when he's starting to knock about in things where, where you're not so sure you want significant change, I mean, you want to dig out this foundation, this is ego, this is identity, this is parts of who I am that I don't actually want you messing with because I know what it's going to cost me. You want to take away those sins, those, those tendencies in my heart, those, that self-centeredness, you want to unravel that? I'm not sure I want that. You're going to have to knock down entire parts of my, my, my being and my identity in order to get there. And and of course, as the metaphor goes, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. C.S. Lewis, he puts it like this. You start to ask, what on earth is God up to? And the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting up an extra floor here. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he himself intends to come and live in it. This is one of the great areas of our own lives where this has to happen. We've been talking about friends and what it means to be the kinds of friends that the Scriptures call us to and to cultivate the kind of friendships. And I have spoken with hundreds of people over the years about their spiritual life and their personal life and their family life and their friendship. And I got to tell you, we are terrible at this. This is actually the source of a whole lot of our problems. We've been seeing that in this whole series. This is a serious issue facing us. And the thing is, we don't actually really want to do the deeper work that is essential to make any real changes. We're okay with him fidgeting around on the edges with things, but we are not actually yet comfortable with the idea that he's going to come in, he's going to start knocking things down and rebuilding them in the way that he wants them to be rebuilt. And this is one of those vital 
areas. In fact, we have talked about, you know, how fiercely independent we are and how commitment phobic we are as a people, and we'll talk more about that in an upcoming week. But, like, you have so many demands on your life, but to be freed from those demands, you're going to have to do serious foundation work. You're going to have to change the way you think and experience a big portion of life and what you value. This is not an easy ask. So that's part of what we're going to try to do today. We're going to actually do two things. We're going to review a little bit of last week's message because I heard from many of you last week that, man, this was really helpful. And so I know not everybody was here. And I know that you, especially you note takers, you didn't miss, you missed a couple of the acronym pieces and you really wanted them. And I'm like, all right, I'll do a quick review on that message from last week. And then I want to push a little bit further into this topic and kind of start to unravel a lie that sits at the heart of Christian community really weakening us uh, over and over and over. And so, all right, so the very first thing uh, that we spoke about last time is that conflict is inevitable and it is essential, that God is actually going to do good things through conflict and through uh, our uh, experience of conflict. And we talked about some lousy ways of dealing with it. We talked about how some of us express everything we feel and others suppress everything that we, that we feel and how others will submit to whatever conflict comes their way because they're just like, nope, not me. I'm out. Like, you're, you're right. I'm wrong. I don't want to fight. I'll do anything I can to avoid the fight. And we said, these are all lousy ways. We also looked at a couple of modern manifestations of this. So one of them is what I, what I referred to as uh, weaponized boundaries, whereas boundaries have been such a very important part of understanding emotional health, emotional intelligence, and all of that kind of stuff. Now it feels to me like we've hit a tipping point uh, in our use of boundaries that has gone beyond what ought to show up in, in the Christian community because now we are icing out anyone who we feel like is a challenge to love. And so we've weaponized this idea of having good boundaries and protecting yourself, and it's become uh, so aggressive that even in its more extreme forms, uh, the, ne- the other thing we talked about was, was there's now a, a quiet quitting phenomenon, that people are, are quiet quitting their friendships. And people don't even know why, and it's creating all sorts of anxiety and insecurity in the person who's been quit. And so we said, these are not ways that the Christian church ought to do things. And so instead, we said, how do we actually fight? How do we have a good conflict in a way that God would want us to? And I gave you a dopey acronym, and I'm going to give it to you again, and it's going to be a quick summary of it. Uh, and if you like any of it, then listen to the whole message. It's, we, we go through it section by section, and we, we reference the book of Proverbs. But if you were wondering about it, it's figure out the issue. That was the very first thing. And so if you're a note taker, write that down because you're going to miss it in a minute. And so you figure out the issue. And here I said, you'd be surprised how many arguments and conflicts are actually resolved when you just decide to agree on what you're fighting about. And sometimes that requires writing it down. I know for me it has for many years. And this is a discipline you will get better at. And so you write it out, and all of a sudden you show it to the other person you're having a conflict with, and you're like, is this what we're fighting about? And they go, well, yeah, that and this. And you're like, okay, let me write that one down, and we'll do that one next. You know, and it could be one issue, two issues, five or ten issues. It doesn't matter how many issues. Just make sure you know what the actual issue is. This itself will resolve some of your conflicts because there'll be a misunderstanding at the heart of it. And once you guys both see it and agree to it, you're like, oh, okay, all this makes sense now. I got I, I to gotta get my, a grip on myself here. But that's only the very beginning. Then you're going to investigate the issue. And this one's a little bit different because it, you're going deeper into it by listening better. You're inviting 
their emotional experiences and response. This is where you're giving them space. Now, we, we talk about reflective listening, and I would say that that's what we're hoping to do here. But to me, reflective listening has always seemed a little bit dopey, right? Like you're, it, it's one of those things where you're like, hey, listen, I, um, uh, so I, tell me how you feel about this. And they say, well, I feel like you've been neglecting uh, our friendship. And you say, so if I hear you right, you're telling me that I'm neglecting the friendship. That's what reflective listening sort of feels like to me. And it's like, yeah, that's what they just said. Like, get a grip, right? Like you, but what I often see happening, especially on issues that are a little bit more complex, is they, the person hearing it back to them says, well, it's that, but it's also this. It's, it's rooted in this. I feel like what really bothers me is it feels like a disrespect or it feels like a violation of an agreement or a promise that we made or something. And that process helps you actually really genuinely understand a person's feelings, not just what happened, but how they are feeling about it, how they're understanding it, and you're actually giving them a gift. You're giving them the space that they might need to investigate it in their own hearts. Then you get perspective, and I said here is you gotta, you gotta be familiar with your Bibles. You gotta get in, you gotta know them, you gotta study them. The Bible answers a whole lot of the questions about life and, and what's good and wrong and right and helpful and all of this, and then find a community that can apply biblical principles into your circumstances with wisdom because that itself is also vital to do. And if, if you have lived without the application of biblical wisdom, uh, you are really hurting the progress that you could be making in the area of your friendships and other conflicts. Uh, and then you're going to hash it out. And here what I was really talking about was when you're getting to the end of the conflict and you're trying to figure out, you're really at the good place where you're like, I get this now, I see what's happening. Eventually, right and wrong starts coming into the forefront, meaning you realize, oh man, I was wrong in this or I was right in this. And this is, this matter. you got to go all the way with this thing. You can't just be like, all right, well, I guess we agree to disagree or I guess we, we try to get to the right or wrong in this thing. Because if you get to the point where you're like, you know what, my friend accused me of neglecting this friendship. I didn't buy it first. I thought they were being a little emotionally needy. But after really listening and talking, they're right. I haven't really been a great friend. You're wrong. You, you were wrong. You sinned against your friend. Now what do you do? Well, the beauty is this is, this, is, this is where things, the magic really takes place, right? This is where the spiritual beauty really comes in. Because now you turn around and you get to say, I'm sorry. You're seeking forgiveness. This is when you get to ask them, you know, to, to forgive you. This is when you're repenting, seeking forgiveness, and when you are making restitution. I don't want to do this, and I will do better in the future. Here is how I'll do it. Let's come up with a plan. How can we build this, this back up to a place? If you have a loyalty issue, a betrayal of some sort, what would that look like? How will you rebuild this? You know, you've been gossiping about me. You agree. You're a gossip. I did this. I embarrassed you in front of our friend group. Now what am I going to do to make restitution? I'm going to go back to all of the friends that I gossiped in front of, and I'm going to make it right. I'm going to tell them I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. These things, I, I, I painted you in a bad light, and I shouldn't have done that. You make restitution. Now, what if you get to the end of the story, and you find out you were right? This is where you rub their nose in it, right? Where you're like, ah, I was, no, right? Because that's what we might want to do, because like now you've argued, you have all this emotion, and now you're actually offering forgiveness. And when you offer forgiveness, you're offering this beautiful, unique version of Christian forgetfulness with it. These are gifts that we're offering now and giving to each other. And so you're hashing it out. And then togetherness. And this is a, a big, important final step that we will often not do, right? So the relationship have an issue and people, we feel like we put it back together, but there's still often lingering hurt or there's a, a reoccurrence of it that might happen later on down the road. And so now what do you do? You're like, now you're saying, hey, 
you're checking in. You're, you're making sure, listen, I love you. I want this relationship. This is, uh, uh, later on, a few weeks later, you're like, hey, man, is there anything else going on? Like, are we still good? Are, are we over it? Are the emotions, I know, are they draining out a little bit of the venom in this thing? Are we doing good? You know, Chris Coates and I, we've been friends for a very long time. He's now pastor over at Island Christian, but we worked together for many years. And we used to, you know, we could, we had a lot of strong opinions. We're very strong-headed, kind of stubborn people. And so there were plenty of opportunities for conflict. We used to have to do a regular check-in with each other. Just every couple of months, I would be like, hey, so how are we doing? And he was like, oh, we're doing good, man. I'm like, you sure? Nothing, I haven't done anything boneheaded lately that you've been kind of holding that you want to talk to me about? He's like, well, no, yeah, okay, maybe. And we would just... We wanted to, togetherness was so important to us and for, the, and for the health of the church, we wanted to make sure we didn't leave anything unspoken, anything simmering below the surface. In fact, on Monday, so last week I taught on conflict, on Monday, Trevor comes into my office Monday morning, I'm already, you know, it's a Monday morning after a Sunday, I'm a little emotionally um, strung out, a little tired, and he walks in, his face has all of this unreadable emotion on it, so I'm like, uh-oh, something's up with Trevor. Like, I, I don't, something isn't good, something bad. He's got, I can see it in his face. And he's like, Robert, um, I feel like we should talk. I mean, based on the sermon on Sunday on conflict, I feel like we should uh, work through some issues. I'm like, why do you teach on conflict? Like, why do you do this, Robert? Like, look, now you got to do it. Now you got to like a hypocrite. I gotta, can't be a hypocrite. So I'm like, all right, I turn my chair and I'm like, all right, fight figure out the issue. We got to work in my acronym, try to apply this thing. And Trevor's like, oh man, I'm just kidding. His face goes happy again. He's actually a theater guy. I'm like, that's mean. Like you, you, I could, I want to be upset, but it was so beautifully and expertly done. I was like, this is fantastic. And of course he was kicking me when I was emotionally down. And I thought it was that's exactly when I would have done it to him. It was so well done. Uh, but, you know, this is what we're shooting for, this sort of togetherness. Now, what I want to do here is I want to do a little bit of con- talking about this sort of a, a, uh, an idea that sits at the center of Christian community that is important for us to spend just a few moments on. And here's the thing. From the beginning of our storyline from Adam and Eve all the way through Job and Abraham and all the way up through the very end of the Old Testament, you will find a story of conflict in humanity. And it's brutal. It's a long, hard story. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, three chapters into the Bible. And these conflicts run all the way through up until you get to the New Testament. Now, if you're in the New Testament, you might say, yeah, but then the the Holy Spirit is poured out on us and Jesus comes and he teaches us anew in a better way. And and that must mean that the early church must be able to do these things better than what the people of God were able to do in the Old Testament. And and no matter how appealing that is, it's not exactly what we find when we get into the Scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, we find theological disputes, church splits, arguments among the leaders, disagreements among the congregants. We see legal disputes, and so many of the letters actually are dedicated to working out some of these issues. I'll give you one example. Read any of the New Testament epistles, and almost all of them will have some section that sounds like this. Now, imagine what circumstances would would have to be happening at a church for one of the apostles to write a letter with these kinds of warnings and encouragements. 
He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Why is he telling you to be patient with each other? Why is he saying love is going to help you bear up under the weight of the relationships that you have here in the church? Why is he saying there is one body, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? One body, one Spirit, well, just as you were called, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. If I said a single word to you that many times in a paragraph, I'm trying to get something across. I'm trying to communicate something to you. You would do the same. You'd be like, no, you got to remember this and this and this. And if you're repeating the same exact thing, there's something that he's trying to get at. There's a problem, a challenge that he's trying to overcome. And he goes through this whole section, and he, he says things just like this over and over and over again. He tells them later on, he's like, listen, don't let the sun go down on while you're still angry. That means people were, were doing that. They were getting angry, and they were letting it linger, and they were letting it simmer. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. He's writing this to the church, to Christians. You're telling me there are people stealing things in the church or from the church or from each other is really the, the most likely? Do something useful. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what's helpful for building them up. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every other form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And so even it gives us the theological underpinnings to get there. You see, the whole of the, the New Testament is working on these very things. It's, it's been at the heart of human relationships, the problems and the conflict. And however that's true, even though that is true, for whatever reason, in all of our closest relationships, we expect it to be different than that. In fact, we demand it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an old German preacher, and one time uh, he, had, he, was, he was one of the guys that conspired against Hitler and tried to, like, overthrow him, and, and he wrote a book called Life Together. Amazing, amazing guy. And this is an ex, a little bit of an extended quote, but he phrases this idea of what it means to, to be in community together. And he says, listen, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream sprung from a wish dream. And, and here's what's so interesting about this idea. There's a, there's a whole Christian theology out there, right? If, you, if you're familiar with Christian theology, you'll know some of the basics of it. We know that there is a God, and you'll know that that God is in the form of a trinity. And you know that this God in triune form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you will know that he is powerful Meaning he can do as he sees he needs to. He is loving. This, by the way, this is very much a regular, normal religious thought for many of the world religions. This is unique. This is a, a distinctly uh, Judeo-Christian idea that there is an actual way to be in real relationship with this mysterious other being that's out there in the universe. But now, this is, this is some straight-up theology, but what else do we know about Christianity. Tell me, what are some of the big you're, you're incubator? You got Scott here in the incubator, the pastoral incubator. What are some of the big points of Christian theology besides God and Trinity and, and that he's powerful? What are some of the other points? Anyone? Forgiveness. What was that one? Sins are, so look at that. That was one of the first things that we will think about. This idea that there is forgiveness 
And it's about Jesus as our atonement. Jesus died for sin. He gives us forgiveness. He dies for our sin. But this also betrays another great truth, that humanity is sinful, meaning we are in need of forgiveness. And when we get to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, we realize how serious this sin state really was. So for us to be restored back into relationship with God, to have the kind of relationship that has forever existed in the Trinity, the three, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, forever in this beautiful dance of love in relationship in the Trinity, it's rooted in his nature. That's why God wants it to be true among us. The way, the only way that we, he is going to be able to see that power expressed in love is for us to experience forgiveness of our sins, and that's going to happen through Jesus. And then Jesus is actually going to defeat death in his own life so that we know that he will be able to defeat death in our lives as well. This is the basic, simple Christian message. This is just straight up gospel Bible 101. Now, when, when you talk about the wish dream that he's saying here, this wish dream for him is anything that violates these deeper truths. And so if you are violating, if you have ideas about what Christian community ought to be, here, if it's in opposition to these things, then it is not true, and it is a human dream, a myth that we believe. So what are the things that we think about as Christians? We bring it in, and he actually even says this. He says, that at some point, the serious Christian, he sets down for the first in a Christian community, he's likely to bring with him a very different idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. And so the Christian gets dropped into a circle of other Christians, and he's like, I know what this ought to be like. In the world, people aren't loyal. And so the Christian community is always going to be loyal. And you know what? When I was growing up, people weren't there for me when I needed them. They didn't care enough and so it's always going to be caring. And, and you know what? It's, I always had to carry extra weight in my family, emotionally, and for my brothers, my sister, whatever it might be. And then in my friends, they have never actually been good friends to me. And there's reciprocity. That means if I show up and I give 50%, we'll hit 100% because they'll meet me there in the middle. And, and there, you know, there, there's going to be a, a steady and consistent kindness. Now, I'm not saying that, that this list of things, that these are going to be bad things in any way. What I'm saying is a person comes to this conversation thinking that that's what they're going to get all the time from their Christian brothers and sisters, from their friendships. That's what they expect. In fact, it's even more than an expectation he says, God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. He's saying, listen, this is, eventually you, you start to realize when you're in the Christian community, it isn't perfect. There's, in fact, a whole lot of problems. And in some ways, I expected I needed more from them, and I have actually gotten less than I needed, than I wanted, than I expected, than I think God was supposed to give to me in it. And so 
you, you guys are going to be wowed because now you get to see the full extent of my artistic amazingness. And so there's a person, like I should tell you that just in case, and, and you, there's another person over here, and this person, he also is standing here. He's got a, almost a smile on his face. And then what ends up taking place here is they have this beautiful thing of Christian community between them, and this binds them together. And so they have this whole idea of the values that, it's gonna, that they're going to live by and how people aren't going to disappoint them. And, you know, when, when, when you go back over here, you know what a whole lot of people do when they show up to, to the wish dream? They say to themselves, my, what, I, what I need are people that think just like me. And so there's politics in here. And there's, there, there's particular per pieces of theology that are passionately important to them. And this is all becomes part of what they expect their new community is going to be like, right? If I, I'll pick a church based on whether I'm red and blue and whether the church is red or blue. Like this is, this is a thing that normally happens. And then all of a sudden, when you start to get to know the community, this thing between you, you start to see it get a little bit cloudy, a little shaded. And this is the disillusionment that starts to form when you say, oh my goodness, I'm, this isn't a perfect, this isn't a beautiful community in the way that I expected it to be. And he's telling us, God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith, the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. And so now you can imagine what happens, right? So you're in this place and you say, oh my goodness, this is not a uh, thing that is good for us at me as a community. And so I'm, I'm up here and I'm going to be a part of this community and I thought I was going to be happy here. And now I look down and I see the disillusionment that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I can't draw eyes, so you just got to work with me here. That, they're, they're, he's looking down now, okay? And so he's looking down at the disillusionment. He sees the disillusionment, and then he runs. He runs. Goes to find another community that will do it right. Leaves the brotherhood. Because I can't deal with this. Not here, not in church. I expected more. I needed more. And what, what Bonhoeffer is telling us and what the Scriptures tell us time and again, what has to happen is you see this disillusionment and you actually, you go in. You go toward it. And when you go toward it, you are entering in to a difficult place, a place of disillusionment, but a place of deeper and more authentic community. In fact, God will use that for our greater good. Bonhoeffer, he says, a community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusions when it should be shattered permanently, loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community as a hindrance to genuine community, it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. If you want to continue in your wish dream, you'll never experience real Christian community. You'll never have genuine friendships 
if the demands that you make of it. He says, he who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Think of this. If your wish dream includes everyone around you being honest and earnest and sacrificial, then that's what you will demand from your community. And when they aren't this way, they're out. Where will the sinner find themselves if they keep getting iced out of Christian community? The man who fashions a visionary idea of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. You see, there was a circle of brethren. That's what it was supposed to be like. It was supposed to knit us together, supposed to bond us together. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brother and then an accuser of God and finally the despairing accuser of himself. You keep doing this time and again. You keep running from Christian community. Eventually, you're going to realize that the common denominator in all of those failed relationships is you. And if you had realized that on the front end earlier in line with Christian doctrine, then you wouldn't have to become an accuser, a despairing accuser of yourself. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ. Long before we entered into the common life with them, we entered into the common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Now, this is, this is where he's starting to turn a corner for us. He says, we thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. He's saying, listen, you want to go find the Christian community? God has given you a Christian community. That was his gift to you. This is God's gift to you. And you're like, wait a second, but it isn't the Christian community I wanted. And God's like, yes, it's the Christian community you need. Then it's the community that needs you, and these are the friends that you need, and these are the this is what is actually how you're all wired together, and you ought to be grateful. And so, so Bonhoeffer is saying, not only is this guy sad as he ditches and runs, but these people actually can be thankful. They can actually turn the frown upside down or whatever this, because they're actually now saying, wait a second, this is this is actually a gift from God. A gift. And we don't see this so often because the people that are difficult to us, we don't see them as gifts. We see them as obstacles. We see them as problems. We see them as a headache. We see them as drama in our lives. It is not what has been given us, is not what has been given us enough. What is it that he's given us? Brothers and sisters who will go on living with us through sin. Brothers and sisters who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace. That's what we are to be to each other. Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this? Any day, even the most difficult and distressing day, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I, too, stand under the word of Christ. My friends, if you, in fact, see yourself, if you go back and you abolish the wish dream and you say to yourself, this is the Christian theology, this is the God 
who wants us to be in unity with him. And he is going to show us incredible love, but it is going to be because of the forgiveness that we found in the death of Jesus because we are sinful. And if we are going to defeat death in our lives and in their lives and ultimately in life, then we're going to take these values and recognize that this is what God has expected of his community, that we would live by these kinds of values. And so we get to look at this and we say, this is, this is, is, this is the sinning brother, but he is a brother. And even more so than a brother, will not this sin be a constant occasion? Will not his sin, my sin, your sin, your sin ought to be an occasion for me to give thanks? Is that the first thing we do? Somebody sins against us, we're like, thank you, God, for this opportunity. I'm so glad this person has crushed my soul. And Bonhoeffer is saying, yes, it can actually be an opportunity for real thanksgiving that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. You now have an opportunity to live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably beneficial. And so now we get to practice what our Christian theology tells us is essential. We get to start tearing apart these lies that everyone is going to do these things for us in the way that we need every single time. And we get to now realize that right here, as we have this Christian community, this disillusionment, which was the very thing we wanted to stay away from, it was the very thing we wanted to run from, we, when we pull in close, we find Jesus at the center of this disillusionment. We get closer to him and we get closer to each other because we can actually live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. This is, this is taking the challenges that we face and the divisions that we face, and it is bringing it to a whole new level. He says, because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word indeed, which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. My friends, if you want to live in the forgiveness of, of Jesus Christ, offer the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If you want to be accepted and experience acceptance from, from Jesus and from the community, then be a person who, who accepts and who pushes through the hard things. And, and you're creating the kind of a community that a sinner like you and a sinner like me can find a home in. This is the encouragement that he gives us time and again to the point where he says, when the morning mists of dreams, right? That's all they are this wish dream. It's a mist in the morning. And when the, the sun comes up, it burns off the mist of the morning. And when that mist is burned off, when it vanishes, then dawns the bright day. Then we get to get started on real and genuine Christian community, real friendship that represents the deepest beliefs that we hold. Would you pray with me? Father, what we're asking is that these ideas, that the deep truths of your word would begin to dismantle this, uh, this, this dream, this wish, this fantasy of what it means to be in Christian community, what it means to have friends, what it means to be a friend. Lord, we, we're asking that you would dismantle these things so that we might come more and more in line with the power of the good news of the forgiveness that we have as sinners. Lord, protect us from judging all of the people around us, from being an accuser of the brethren and the sisters. Lord, we don't want to be those people. Father, you've told us, 
with the judgment we use, we'll be judged. That's how we experience, Lord. When we, when we flee from difficult, hard conversations and relationships, Lord, because, because we think that there's a, a better version of Christian community, we isolate ourselves from the gift that you've given us, from the work that you want to do. You're knocking around. You're, you're trying to uncover deeper, more painful stories in our own hearts, our sins in our own lives. And Lord, you're going to use the people all around us to do that. Thank you, Father. Make us more and more this community. May we shine like a city on a hill. May the world, alone and desperately separated from you, may they see the way we love each other and the sacrificial ways that we honor our commitment to you, to our faith, to our love for Jesus and his love for us. I pray, Father, that the world would see it and they would try to beat down the doors to be a part of that kind of community. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.